Hello and welcome to episode 73 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm your host, Dr. Richard McKinnon, and this time I'm joined again by Dr. Rachel Skews for another discussion all about imposter syndrome. Now, Pilar and I started this discussion last episode looking at how our experience of homeworking could contribute to these unpleasant thoughts and feelings. In this episode, Rachel and I discuss the concept again, but through the lens of ACT, or acceptance and commitment theory, and how coaching interventions can really support us in this space. But before we move on to this discussion, I want to share a couple of other relevant points with you. First of all, if you'd like to know more about imposter syndrome, this kind of unpleasant um, way of looking at our own success, um, our own competence, I'm going to be running a free webinar on it on Wednesday, the 21st of October. And you can find out all the details and how to register for that on the website, worklifepsych.com slash webinars. It's just another one of the free worklife webinars that we're running through 2020. Now, last week, Pilar and I ran a webinar all about online collaboration and how to introduce asynchronous working practices. Uh, if you missed it, you can watch the recording of that on our YouTube channel, and you can find that at worklifepsych.com slash YouTube. Uh, to be honest, I've been a little bit taken aback by the sheer volume of views that this particular recording has received so far. So I think we've you know, struck a chord here, um, the, the difficulty that many people have continuing their team collaboration when they're not co-located, when they're working at home, and maybe when this is the first time they've experienced it. So if you're interested in these topics, keep an eye on the webinars page, or better still, sign up for our newsletter to hear about them in advance. I'll put the link for that in the show notes. Now, Rachel joined me for discussion about acceptance and commitment coaching way back in episode 54. If you missed that episode, it's definitely worth a listen, even if I say so myself, because it really gives you a great insight into how acceptance and commitment theory can have a positive, a really profound impact on the coaching itself. Let me tell you a little bit about Rachel before we go into the interview. Rachel's part of the science and strategy team at Headspace, which I'm sure you've heard me mention before on the podcast. Headspace is a multinational mindfulness organization whose mission is to improve the health and happiness of the world. Rachel leads the health coaching team there. But prior to this, Rachel was a lecturer at the Institute of Management Studies at Goldsmiths, University of London, where she ran the MSc in Occupational Psychology and the Postgraduate Certificate in Coaching programs. And that's really how I know Rachel through our work together at Goldsmiths. Um, I'm really grateful to Rachel for her time uh, coming on the program again and for sharing her expertise. I really enjoyed talking to her about this uh, fundamental topic. So here we are, another episode of My Pocket Psych in the Can. And actually, I mentioned in my discussion with Rachel that it was uh, a year to the day since our last recording. Well, actually, this week sees our third birthday. So before I wrap up, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has listened, who continues to listen, who recommends the show to others, who's given us feedback online. It's really all um, really welcome and really appreciated. 
Uh, I also want to thank Pilar, who's been a great co-host and continues to be so and will continue to be so. And to our very patient sound engineer and podcast polisher, Ross Winter, who has just been um, a fantastic support over the last few years. And I've learned everything I know about sound and sound recording and podcast production from him. So if you've got anything to say to us about the podcast, what you're enjoying, what you think we could be doing more of, less of, what you'd like to hear about in the future, do get in touch. Send us a message on Twitter at MyPocketPsych or send us something longer via the contact form on our website. And you can find that at worklifepsych.com slash contact. As ever, thank you so much for listening. So Rachel, it's great to be speaking with you again. Great to have you back on the podcast. And I don't know if you know this, but it's exactly one year to the day since we last recorded for the podcast. Wow. Is it, did you set that up or is that something? <laughs> <I, laughs> uh, you, you do um, imply that I have really good organizational <laughs> abilities there. No, it was, it, it jumped out at me from Skype um that that was the last recording so yeah so welcome back it's really nice to have you back on yeah well i'm i'm looking forward to our annual chat then <laughs> um so as you'll know you know the the last uh conversation i had with pilar on the podcast was all about introducing this concept of imposter syndrome and you know exploring how that if we're working in isolation we're working at home away from our colleagues it it can be that the self doubt is is magnified and amplified and and that can spill over into worries and anxiety about how other people view us and yeah we could say that that is a form of uh, imposter syndrome that really irrational self-doubt that you're just not good enough and you don't deserve mm -hmm. your position um, or any feedback you get. And, and what I thought we could do today would be to explore how might we do something about that in a coaching context? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let, let me get your view. I mean, if how would I know if I was experiencing this imposter syndrome? What, what kinds of things might I say to you if you were my coach? So I think, I think it shows up in lots of different ways and it might show up internally differently. So if I'm your coach, um, you, you would have to feel probably quite comfortable with me to, to openly and without me eliciting it from you, actually bring this stuff into the conversation. It can be really, really difficult. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about this, um, it's not the only example of where, we see this in human behavior or in the workplace, but it is certainly a very common example of where you have so many people who are feeling the same things and we don't talk about it mm. and we don't see it in others. Um, it's almost like this hidden thing that we're all carrying around with us. So whenever I'm doing sessions with people, um, I try to be very open about, um, you know, the experiences that I've had where I might feel this sort of thing. Um, and the work that I do, as you know, I use acceptance and commitment theory in my coaching. And so I will do work with coaches and people I'm working with to elicit this kind of thing. It's the difficult thoughts and feelings that we're all carrying around with us. So typically it would, it's like that feeling of 
like a feeling of doubt or a feeling of, um, I mean, I tend to feel it almost like as a constriction in my chest. Mm-hmm. It's this <gasps> sort of feeling, if I can vocalize it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could be quite emotive for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the thoughts and feelings that tend to go through certainly my mind and, and commonly through other people's minds, you know, it's things like someone is going to find me out, this feeling of being found out. Someone is going to realize I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, and I think what really does amplify it is the fact that we don't really talk about it. People in the workplace tend not to have that level of open and vulnerable conversation as a norm. I think that's pretty I think that's pretty standard in most workplaces. You know, it would be somewhat unusual to walk into a room and to have that conversation. Um but nevertheless, I think it is useful for us to normalize this a little bit more, certainly within ourselves. Like I guarantee you, if you're in a room full of people, the vast majority will have felt like this at some point. Mm. Mm. So you and I, before we started the podcast. Um, we're chatting about a new role that I have. So I've moved to a, a great company, Headspace, and I'm doing a new role that I'm really enjoying, but it's taking me out of my comfort zone. And I am having the feeling very frequently of I could be better. I need to be better. I'm not good enough. Mm. They all are so much more competent than I am. Um, I wonder when they'll sack me. Uh, there's a there's a whole theme. There's a whole stream of consciousness, and I am currently experiencing this pretty much every day. Not on a not on a weekend. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say that doesn't sound pleasant, and it sounds like the kind of thing that could preoccupy someone. Yeah, and so I want to frame this as this is a job that. I'm really enjoying and I'm working with a group of people who I really enjoy working with. And, you know, it's a company whose mission I really believe in. The work is very fulfilling for me. The feedback I'm getting is overall very positive. You know, this is not the reality of I am failing in my job. And yet I am still carrying around this very, I wouldn't say it's the strongest time I felt it, but it's the first time I felt it for a little while. Mm-hmm. You know, because I've been in a role, um, I was very settled in my role uh, when I was working at Goldsmiths, who I absolutely love with all my heart. There's a real um, difficulty to move away from that. But inevitably, when we start something new, or we put ourselves into a situation where we're stretching ourselves in some way, then this feeling of imposter syndrome often comes along with it. And I think we're talking about it as a syndrome. And somebody quite rightly challenged me when I was talking about this at a conference and said, well, it's not really a syndrome if everybody's feeling it. And I thought, yeah, okay, I am. it's shorthand. It's shorthand for these very common experiences that we have, which can be, as you were saying, really difficult, really kind of um, difficult and heavy stuff to be carrying around. You know, it disrupts your sleep. It can distract you when you're actually working, when you're working with people or when you're trying to do other work tasks. So it can be a really impactful kind of set of things, you know, bodily sensations. If you're feeling, as I was talking about, like a constriction in the chest or that sort of 
that feeling of, you know, kind of <gasps> just carrying this tension around. Um, and when it's acute, when people are really feeling it, I think it can be almost, um, it can almost get you into that, you know, you, you, you really struggle to move forward mm-hmm. because you, you're just so, this is just taking up so much of your, your thinking and your attention. So, I think I think that's a great way of describing it. I, I I hear those examples all the time, and it's one of the reasons we're talking about it at the moment. That, um, from my perspective, a lot of the people I'm working with are talking about this at the moment. It's become more noticeable for them because mm. they're missing that workplace, and in some ways, but the the absence of feedback, the absence of some of the comparisons they like to make, it has left a bit of a vacuum, and that's being filled with doubt and those unhelpful comparisons and um but but also behaviors that aren't Mm. exactly helpful and you know the way that i've seen it manifest more recently is that kind of unsustainable sprinting you know if i can just do more and work longer then i'm somehow demonstrating my worth rather than uh no it's it's time to pack up for the day you know I've, i've done a good job uh today that that's much more difficult to do if you're experiencing this kind of thing and i would agree with you with the shorthand piece as well because you know to my mind imposter syndrome is now in that category of words that are being used by the general public and have in a sense lost their meaning but i i don't want to get hung up with that with an individual if they use that phrase let's talk about what it means to you but i'm definitely not going through a list of diagnostic criteria uh, to tell them you have this or you do not have this to my mind if it's upsetting you and it's distracting you and it's taking you away from what you want to be doing then that's let's look at that and mm-hmm. you can call it what you like yeah and as psychologists we tend to think about these behaviors as on a spectrum from kind of you know functional to dysfunctional so at its most extreme what we're describing as a kind of overall set of behaviors um, would possibly be at that diagnosable level but you're going to get a much larger group of people who are experiencing something less acutely or less severely Mm. which is the same set of behaviors you know we have that same spectrum with various other um, sets of behaviours, which we we typically use as a as a diagnosis for mm. various um, you know mental mental kind of categories. And so, from from an act perspective, it, it is all about looking at what's helpful and unhelpful, rather mm. than attaching labels. And mm-hmm. and some people who who won't use this phrase definitely wouldn't want this phrase to be used to describe them. Um, the last thing they need is is another label. But what I'm really interested in is your perspective on where you think this stems from. You know, what, what, what are common ways that this originates in people? Mm. So I think that's a really interesting one. And I think this is the key to understanding how common it is. So it typically, from an ACT perspective, from an ACT understanding of it, in my opinion, one of the things that is really interesting is that I think you get these feelings more when you are doing work that you really care about or something that feels really important to you or something that really matters to you. So when we're doing act work, we're thinking about what brings meaning and purpose to people. We're talking about identifying that and taking committed action towards it. And I, I've noticed in my own life that I feel this stuff more when I care about 
what I'm doing mm. when it matters to me. I think we should also, I, I think it's helpful here to bring in um, how often this works, um, sorry, this this kind of um, appears in with parents as well. Mm-hmm. I talk to a lot of friends and a lot of um, colleagues and I notice it a lot in parenting, you know, this idea of doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm a terrible parent. So I think, I think that's a really nice example of, you know, there are a few relationships that we hold that are more important to us than the ones that we have with our children and the importance of us as their guardian. You know, so it can be a really, really difficult thing to carry around this sense of being judged. And, um, you know, we, we, our two big areas in most people's lives are work and family. And if you think, you know, especially now with the uh, uh, COVID, meaning we, these areas are crossing over more. Um, I can understand why people are feeling imposter syndrome a bit more acutely because you could be getting it from work, you could be getting it from home, and you might be getting it from both. Exactly, and and this this kind of um, messing up or um, deteriorating of those boundaries, and um, whether they're time based or or geographical, or even mm-hmm. just the sense making boundaries. Now I'm at work. Now I'm not. Uh, yeah, that 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 is difficult in lots of different ways for people because you may have a certain status in an organization, but it's only obvious to people when you're in your physical office <laughs> and mm. when you're at the end of a video line in, in your spare bedroom or in your kitchen, that status uh, could maybe feel um, less obvious and mm. having less of an impact. But but I, I definitely hear what you're saying about the caring piece. I think it would be potentially very difficult to wonder and get upset by thoughts about your competence if you didn't care. So yeah. it's a nice way of exploring it that, well, this is meaningful to you, this thing you're upset about. Um, but the other big piece that, that comes up regularly is that, that pitfall of comparison. And yeah. often, unlike comparison to an individual, it's almost comparison to an invisible person. Uh, an unspecified competitor that is just better than them. So it's an unattainable goal because there is no end point to this race. It's just, I need to be better. And that's that's exhausting. Oh, yeah, I agree. And I, I, I would build on that a little bit as well because you've, you've, the way you're sort of framing it there connects with one of the other things that I was thinking about, which is this sense of who we should be and who we are. Mm. You know, so the person that you want to be or you feel you should be, you might not be matching up to that. So you've got not only this comparison to others, external people that you see, and this, yeah, I'm feeling this at the minute. I'm working with an incredibly talented group of people, <laughs> which is wonderful. <laughs> but I keep looking at them and I think, oh, I'm, I'm not at your level, you know, which again, you're not going to be when you're in a new role or you're taking on a new task, or you're stretching yourself in some way, then you have to develop. Otherwise, you're not out of your comfort zone. But to so come I back think, to your very first point, wouldn't mm-hmm. it be interesting if we could see inside your colleagues' minds to see the impact <laughs> you've had on their view, you know, view of self? Like, oh, here, here she is over in the UK. Like she's obviously an expert. Oh God, what will this mean for how we do things here? I'm going to have to up my game. You know, it's entirely possible that it's working in both directions, right? Entirely possible. But even as you're speaking, the voice in my head is saying, no, no. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The the example I often share, because you mentioned this as well about 
um, use of self um, in in coaching and to you know normalizing these things. The example um, I share is is when I was called back into the room after my doctoral viva exam to be told that I I passed with minor amendments. And my mind immediately went, well, that's obviously a mistake. You can't have passed. It's wrong. They're wrong. Now, how are we going to get out of this mess? There was no sense of, oh, relief. Well done. I wonder what the amendments are. Nope. It was, no, they're obviously, obviously wrong. This is an elaborate setup. And it's the hugely irrational bit, but it kicks off all of the emotions that go with that. And, and as a result, I was in a kind of a psychological wind tunnel. I don't remember the next 20 or 30 minutes of conversation about it because I was so sure that it was wrong. Uh, and that stuck with me as a sort of a, a good example for, for me of the, yeah, the, the disbelief, the irrational nature, the inability to appreciate an achievement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's reinforcing that, you know, this is, if this is something you care about, you might feel it more, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and isn't that interesting? you're almost because of those thoughts and feelings that you're having you you get into that internal struggle with them of trying to manage them trying to manage you trying to manage your responses to them and you just cannot pay attention to what else is going on mm -hmm. so this is where the element of performance workplace performance comes in that you've got these distractions you've got this extra kind of demand that is being placed upon you um so it's taking away some of the resources that you have in order to meet your, your other demands, your other workplace demands around doing your job and, you know, whatever that might look like for you. And you're yeah. kind of creating an additional demand. So if we're thinking about this in the perspective of demands and resources, which is one of the, the, the models that I use the most in terms of understanding workplace performance and well-being, the job demands resources model, mm. you're actually reducing your resources and increasing your demands just through this process which is not you know this is that's normal that's what happens to humans when, when they think like this and that's you know there's nothing there's nothing wrong with any of us for thinking like this it's just how we're kind of set up really culturally and psychologically it, it's the distraction bit though isn't it it's it's mm. not being focused on the here and now and the task in front of you or the person in front of you it's being all up in your mind uh, dealing with the stuff that you don't want, dealing with that self-doubt, that that voice, those images, whatever that is. And yes, it, it, it was something I was going to ask you. This has a really clear link with performance. It's not just how happy someone is with their status or how they're getting on. It can have a very tangible impact on the quality of the work that they actually do. And I think part of me is is thinking this is often more obvious at the moment when so many people are interacting with colleagues via an un maybe an unfamiliar medium um, like these video calls and maybe having lots of people on a video call and wondering about that but also wondering about how do they appear and how are they doing and how are they making their points all of that's taking them away from their ability to focus on the reason they're having the call in the first place and then you mm -hmm. get that cycle of oh I didn't do very well there or I got feedback about that and it can be a, a self-sustaining thing and that, that's yeah. one that I see where people have a lot of self-doubt unhelpful self-doubt mm -hmm. and the other and is I the competitive I must do more I need to work faster and longer to prove myself to someone I, I can't even name them 
Mm-hmm. And I think I, w- I wanted to just amplify really what you were saying about feedback, because having these thoughts and feelings can really get in the way of doing something that could be actually ultimately quite helpful, which is asking for feedback, maybe something that you, you know, a specific, um, we, we would use the word behavior, but it could be anything. It could be a situation. It could be, you know, you're in a meeting or you completed a task or whatever it might be and asking feedback when you're feeling these things that we call, you know, that the stuff that we're calling behavior, uh, sorry, imposter syndrome. I think it can almost paralyze you from from asking for feedback um, because you have this almost, uh, you just don't want to know. You're so avoidant of you know being confronted with what your actual performance might be because you've convinced yourself that your performance is so terrible. Mm. And, and the the process of normalizing this, talking about it, focusing on evidence and facts and performance uh, flies in the face of all of that irrational stuff that's inside. Mm. And, and yeah. that can lead you to um, maybe help yourself by getting that feedback, because that that sounds like a bit of a, a bit of a nightmare. Mm. It strikes me with the way you're you're talking about it, that there's a big role here. Um, from an act perspective for for building skills of diffusion and, mm-hmm. and to get some space between you and some of the, those unwelcome thoughts and images inside. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for just noticing that you're having these thoughts. Once you notice that you're having them, then that's that to me is kind of part of the battle, really. Um, and you can kind of recognize it as a story that you're telling yourself you know, either about you or you in, in a particular situation. Um, I have a similar one to you, which is also PhD related. When I was doing um, a, a large scale coaching study, I started, I was feeling these very acute um, feelings of imposter syndrome, you know, like walking into these businesses and working with really quite senior people with this coaching protocol that I'd written using ACT, etc. And I remember thinking, like, what am I doing? I'm wasting their time. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And obviously, you know, the RCT data tells a completely different story. We got mm. some really nice, you know, so I've even got quantitative data now to say that it was it was useful, you know. But you still, you have this. And, and so I started to use some of the um, ACT, as all good practitioners do. I used my stuff on myself. Um, and I... Uh, I referred to it as the PhD failure story. You know, I was mm. going to fail and I was going to let everybody down and it was going to be horrible. But then it started to almost, like when I was feeling like that, I could almost smile and say, oh, there we go again. That's the PhD failure story, which to be really, um, you know, this is not about self self ridicule or not taking these things seriously or being unkind and, and kind of poking fun at yourself. It's more for you to notice it and, and almost like with kindness and curiosity. So it did used to make me smile, mm. um, but it was a kindness rather than a, you know, an unkind kind of um, nasty way of mm. being to, to myself. And I think that self-compassion, it's something that businesses and people in, in businesses are starting to really switch on to, that this 
endless kind of, you know, in a motivational way, using the stick all the time, that doesn't really work. Um, mm. It's not sustainable. I think that's the difference in terms of performance. Whereas being able to give yourself, like you were saying, being able to switch off and give yourself the time to recover, in terms of your performance, that's going to be better than you kind of endlessly you know, working all the hours that there are in the day, um, missing time with the family, whatever it might be that it's costing you as a human, um, you know, that's not, that's not the route to longer term performance. And yet, and I agree with you, and yet that voice, those thoughts, those images say you're not doing enough, you're not doing it well enough. And so if we take those as facts or instructions or literal truths, and we don't see them for what they are, then we follow them. And that's when we have some of that less desirable, problematic behavior. Whereas if, as you're saying, we're able to say, I notice I'm having those thoughts again. I notice those thoughts are being given to me, or I notice that story again. You can then have a very different relationship with it. And I underline everything you say about compassion. It's a topic that's coming up so much at, at the, the, the moment for people who are feeling they're not doing a good job. Compassion involves, let's take a step back and look at what's just going on in the world. And why do you think you should be a superstar right now? Give yourself a break and look at it with a little bit more, um, uh, sort of a gentler perspective on all of mm -hmm. this it can it can really go a long way to to give people pause for thought mm. and i also think going back to that you know i tend to find in myself and in others when i've worked with other people this you feel like this a bit more acutely when you're out of your comfort zone so i think also being kind enough to yourself to say you know this is part of the journey that you you're on and and hopefully it's a journey you've chosen to go on as opposed to, you know, having something thrust upon you. Although I, I appreciate that's not going to be the case for everybody. But I think being able to notice, notice those feelings and thoughts as they arise and being able to, to have a slightly different relationship to them. So our automatic relationship is to push them away, get rid of them. Um, and some of what we do might help, but some of it might be short term helpful. Mm. Um, and I think that's something else to notice what's working longer term and what's working short term and the short term stuff, uh, you know, that's where down that road burnout leads, yeah. you know? Yeah. So you, you can see the short term wins, you can tick the boxes, but it's harder to see the medium to long term impact of what you're doing. And yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's the unsustainable side of things. If we view this as a continuum, you know, what is the, is, is that the essential difference between sort of reasonable self-doubt and wondering about your competence versus at the other end, the kind of imposter syndrome that can hold you back or lead to those uh, undesirable behaviours and, and outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I'm not sure if it's one that I fully feel I know the answer to. I feel like, you know, there might be times in my life where I've crossed that boundary of what feels manageable and what feels really, really not manageable. Um, I think, I think it's, it's one of those things where if you did, if you didn't do something differently, you would go down that path of either leaving a job because you're very unhappy 
or actually having a negative impact on your own performance or making yourself quite unwell. Mm. And it, you know, we're talking about ACT. It, it strikes me as well that if we can remember to appreciate context and respond to the context rather than a rule we have in our minds, then we can maybe adapt a little bit better to that and realize that we're in a different context. And so we might need to do things differently. What worked for us before might not work here or what we're compelled to do um, by the thoughts uh, may not work. And so getting familiar with that context and how it's different could be one angle of approaching this. Mm. Yeah, the context is always so key because it could just be that the context is different. Even if all of your strategies still work, you might feel differently. You might not have built the relationships or you might be working with a different team who respond and give feedback differently. So even subtle differences in the situation that you're working in or you know other aspects, you could, could be things going on in your personal life. We've all been thrown into you know a bit of turmoil due to the COVID pandemic, it has not, I don't think it's left any of us untouched. Mm. And so we're all having to respond and evolve in, you know, this new, new, new way of working, which for some people might be working really well. And for some people it might not. So there's the context is always almost the most important thing really, isn't it? It gives us a sense of uh, where we are and what we're up to rather than this is a straight line from A to B. Um, I am the same no matter what happens. Well, how about how you show up when things happen and how you respond to those, paying attention to that and, and realizing that maybe different aspects of you are called for or are more helpful in this context and not trying to replicate what you've always done before when the environment around you couldn't be more different. Mm. And I think this also brings up this really important point of the the constraints that we're working in. You know, if in an ideal world, we would all be able to control our thinking, we'd all be able to control our environment, we'd all be able to, you know, control the context. The reality is we can't. Mm. And so, you know, there is this almost like a sense of grieving <laughs> mm. for, you know, the things we've lost as a result of the way that we've had to change as a result of the, the, the pandemic. Um, but the reality is none of us have any control over it. And so I think that where we might try and control the environment as a way of controlling our responses to what we're feeling, you know, there might be things that we would try and do. We're actually constrained even more than we would be in a normal situation, which can, again, kind of amplify these feelings. You know, it can make people feel really alone, mm. I think. Mm. And we talked about feedback as being one way that you might, you know, if you were in an office or or, or in a workspace with other colleagues and um, they might notice that you've a bit more withdrawn or that you seem a bit more pressured or, you know, whatever it is, and they might be able to step in and actually give you some support and reassurance. The way we're all having to work now, it makes it much more difficult for those, you know, those more subtle, supportive um, things that we get from our colleagues to happen because the times that we spend with them generally for most of us um, in you know working from home and over zoom um, they, they've become much more formalized you know mm, mm. Does that make sense 
it absolutely does. We haven't got the space, uh, or it feels like we haven't got the space for those moments of kind of humanity, checking mm-hmm. in and 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 chatting, you know. And that that um, but you're not the first person to talk about grieving um, as being a really good metaphor for this, because a conversation I've had a lot this year has been, well, it's terrible, but I shouldn't think that because you know I'm not as bad off as some people, mm-hmm. um, and that can lead to that I should be okay because terrible things have happened to other people rather than having compassion for yourself, which is, yeah, I've had a lot of disappointments and setbacks. Maybe I'm healthy. Maybe I've not had any bereavements. Maybe I still have my job, but you know what? It's still been very upsetting for me. And this comparison to other people's situations is what can can lead us astray. I should be okay with this because at least X hasn't happened to me rather Mm -hmm. than Y happened to me, Z happened to me, ABC happened to me and I really didn't like it and I'm not joyous about it. Now, what can I do about that? Oh, so this is an interesting one. So we just talked about constraints. Like there's there's something else I was quite randomly thinking about this morning, actually. You know, ACT is not really about changing your environment. You might take committed action towards changing your environment, but you might not be able to. And as a as an approach, I think that's really powerful because it's saying you can change. You you still have you are still empowered as a human being to do something constructive, even in the most constrained of situations. And ACT practitioners often use the example of um, uh, Viktor Frankl mm. um, in Man's Search for Meaning, which is a, a fantastic, if somewhat difficult, book to read. Um, but he talks about, you know, how you can take away every choice, every freedom that we have, except our ability to choose how we respond to the world. And I, I love that about ACT. That's probably the thing I love the most about it. And I think that's the crux of what we're talking about here. So you you may not be able to change the environment. You may not be able to change the situation that you're working in. But what you can do is learn some skills. We talked about diffusion. Um, acceptance, self-care and self-compassion and those sorts of skills as well as the noticing skill being able to notice that you are having these different thoughts that really for me is where you can have some very helpful changes and shifts in the way that you're thinking and relating to the things that are that you know the bucket of stuff that we're calling um, imposter syndrome mm. so I, I mentioned one which is around uh, naming a story or naming, you know, if it were a film, what would the film be called? If it was a book, what would the book be called? Mine was called The PhD Failure Story. And that can help you because it it just helps you to notice it in a slightly different way. And what we're talking about is sort of depowering the effect that some of these things can have on you. So, you know, if you have yours, like get blindsided by them sometimes, mm-hmm. um, it can just hit you. And it's quite a visceral feeling, you know, like a feeling in your stomach. Um, and so this can help, you know, you just notice it in a slightly different way, just respond to it in a slightly different way. And it takes a little bit of practice um, in order to kind of depower it a little bit. And then, sorry. No, no, please go ahead. So I was going to say, and then I think the next step really is to, to turn up your willingness you know, firstly, check in about 
the situation, the context, you know, is this committed action? Yeah. And by that, I just mean it is what you're doing that is almost triggering these thoughts and feelings. Is it something that you really want to be moving towards, whatever that might be? So for me, with the new job, absolutely. This is so worth it for me because I am really enjoying it. You know, the feelings that I'm having are difficult. I'm not enjoying that side of it. But I know that it will be worthwhile. So I would really check in about that. You know, is this is this really the path that you want or need to be on? Um, and if it isn't, then we're talking about a slight adjustment. You know, maybe you need to come up with a plan of action that moves you out of that situation, in whatever it is. But if you decide, like I do, that it is something that you really want and is really important to you, then it's just a case of kind of working on that acceptance of feeling that way and the self-care element of, do you know what? A lot of people feel like this. There's nothing unusual about me. Um, this is pretty normal, I think. And it's just me being a bit hard on myself often. You know, I'm really driven and I really care about what I do and I really love what I do. So it matters to me that I do a good job, um, you know, and I really want to make a bit of a difference in the world. And so that really drives me. And that's where this stuff comes from for me. And I know it does. And so being willing to have the difficult thoughts and feelings and, and turning towards them and almost embracing them as part of the experience and doing it with intention and doing it with a bit of ownership that changes your relationship to them. But it's got to be something that's worthwhile to you. Otherwise, you know, it's just going to be an unpleasant and potentially quite um, negative experience for you. And that's really key to this, isn't it? Because it, it is about accepting some of this stuff while you do something meaningful. It's not about, can I just feel confident now? I just want to get rid of all of this self-doubt. I want to get rid of these worries. I don't want to feel them. I just want to feel great about myself. That's kind of the antithesis of what we're talking about from an ACT perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, notice, accept, you know, unpleasant stuff inside, get some distance from those thoughts so they're not controlling things. But then most importantly, do something that's meaningful. Don't wait to feel fantastic about it before you do it, because that's a trap we can easily fall into. We're waiting to feel some confidence or some um, self, um, yes, confidence, basically, before we take helpful action. And therefore, we're mm -hmm. taking the self-doubt as, oh, I, I should not do it because I, I have this self-doubt. It, it's cart before the horse, in a sense. Mm, yeah, I agree. Rachel, it's been really, really great to talk to you about this. I sense we could go on, <laughs> but I'm also aware we've both got stuff on to do and we, we have um, stuff in our agenda. So what I'd like to do is just bring things to a close right now. And thank you so much again for giving your time to join us. I hope you'll be able to do so again in the future. But is there any kind of one final thing you'd like to share or, or draw a line under um, as we wrap up? For me, I think the thing that is powerful that people can take away is that you are not alone if you feel like this. There's nothing wrong with you. It doesn't mean that you're no good at your job. It just means that you're probably stretching yourself or you're feeling out of your comfort zone. And I think we all feel like this, not all of the time, but I actually think it's pretty healthy in some ways because 
I always like to keep pushing myself and challenging myself and growing. And in order to do that, you have to be out of your comfort zone. So getting a healthy willingness to tolerate a healthy amount of imposter syndrome, I think can be a really valuable skill set to develop. Fantastic. Rachel, thank you so much. And um, we will um, look forward to to sharing this uh, with, with our listeners. And of course, I invite everyone listening to get in touch with their questions. You can do that on Twitter at MyPocketPsych. You can send us a longer message on the contact form, which you can find on uh, worklifepsych.com slash contact. And I'm going to say it now. If there are questions I have no idea to answer, Rachel, I'll be reaching out to you. My pleasure. I'd love to. I'd love to hear what people think. So fantastic. We'll let you know. We'll leave it there. Thanks, Rachel. No worries. Thanks for downloading this episode of My Pocket Psych. To get in touch with questions and feedback, you can tweet us at worklifepsych or leave us a message on the contact form at www.worklifepsych.com/contact. Thanks for listening.